Welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. Hey, I wanted to show you, first of all, before you do anything, I painted <gasps> my nails like hyper pink. Electric like our pink. Electric oh, they're pink. like the pinkest pink. Yes, they're Stuart, very pinkest Stuart pink. Stuart Semple pink. Yes. These are very Stuart Semple pink, and I put like a matte top coat Ugh. on them. Yeah, I'm very proud of these. Um, they kind of glow, which is exactly what I want on Gorgeous. my hands 24-7. Um, so that was my little... That was my little homage to your episode <laughs> um so last week you did a great i guess sponsored i don't know how to say these sponsored episode by a listener yeah the, the much of the research was provided to me in advance which yes. i gotta say was pretty nice was thank pretty you nice. again landon so um now it's my turn to have a sponsored episode <laughs> And I will say ahead of time that all of the research was done entirely by our <laughs> by our listener, Adam Large. So Adam has written literally written a book about this topic. It you can we will be uh, I will tell you the the bitly link at the end of this episode if you want to see it yourself. It's so impressive. He even did original artwork for the cover. <laughs> That you can actually buy a t-shirt. He's available on TeePublic. We'll also provide that on our socials. It's very great. So the topic today is entitled, A Basic Intro to Neuroscience for Ladies and Gents Who Like Cool Trivia. Just the basic intro to neuroscience. Just a basic intro to neuroscience. And it also says, A Nervous Unum, which I think is pretty good. (laughs) Um, so, I mean, this book has, you know, you can flip the pages, you can have Microsoft, I don't know, David or whatever, the automated voice, you can have it read to you, read to you. Can I get Clipford to read to me? You can get a British person. You can get, um, an Australian accent, I think is the other one. Sorry, I was trying to do the full name of Clippy. Oh, (laughs) Clippy has a full name. Mm, His real name is Clip It. Clip It. Okay. Well, I'm going to call him Clipford. Clipford is is much more, I think it it has a gravitas to it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, agreed. So um, also, just as an FYI, at the top, you can get this t-shirt. It's called a neuro shirt. You can get it at bit.ly slash neuro shirt. That's N-E-U-R-O-S-H-I-R-T. It's very cool. You can get it in a variety of colors. Uh, I might pick one up myself. Awesome. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll share this also on uh, the Twitter and the Facebook page too. Absolutely. In case you aren't... um, uh, frantically scribbling yeah. a URL down while you're driving. Please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> we do not want to have the responsibility of, of your injuries or the injuries of another person. Um, but uh, a description of the book is, this book is meant to be a short, well, short-ish review of neuroscience with a focus on things that might be helpful at your local trivia night. Specifically, this was written for the Misinformation Trivia Podcast, available wherever podcasts are sold. Um, please Adam rate, rece- review, and subscribe. Yes, please rate, review, and subscribe. Yeah, do that. Why Just get that in there too, everybody. Uh, Adam Large received his PhD in neuroscience from the University of Pittsburgh. Woo! Whoop, whoop. Uh, and his main hobbies are trivia, board games, and Magic the Gathering. He says maybe someday he'll be able to figure it out to combine them all. Aww. So 
Um, there's images. He even included like uh, a clip from Pinky and the Brain. You guys, this book, <laughs> it's it's just incredible. So we'll start with a brief history. So neuroscience, or the study of the nervous system, has had an interesting history of being both extremely old and extremely new. Uh, Ancient Greeks and Egyptians went back and forth whether the brain or the heart was the center of intelligence, and Hippocrates argued that the brain was the center, though this wouldn't gain traction until the Roman physician Galen proposed it. Um, It took until an understanding of electricity in the 19th century before we could really understand the brain. The experiments of Luigi Galvani and the electrical activity of the body paved the way for research in the nervous system. Uh, For a while, neuroscience research was divided into different fields, such as physiology, uh, anatomy, zoology, psychiatry, etc. David Rioche helped integrate these fields, creating the Neuroscience Research Program at MIT in 1962. Uh, James McGow established the first Department of Neuroscience uh, at University of California, Irvine in 1964, and later major neuroscience organizations were created, including the International Brain Research Organization, or IBRO, (laughs) (laughs) because it's a bunch of bros working on brains. That, That could be like your mnemonic for it. Um, that was established in 1961, and the Society for Neuroscience was established in 1969, which is known for its annual meeting, one of the largest scientific conferences in the world. So we're going to start with neurons, a.k.a. the small stuff. So Adam, and again, this is all Adam's words. I I am not the data scientist or the neuro. Scientist, scientist in this situation. I am just, I am the female voice of Adam Large in this specific instance, <laughs> everyone. So all my words are his words, except when I do an aside. Um, you'll know when that happens. Uh, neurons. <laughs> you know, have many less syllables. <laughs> yeah, it will, they will be, those, <laughs> those observations will be much dumber. Um, <laughs> so neurons are the main cell of the nervous system. They're not the only ones. Uh, we'll get to glial cells later, but when you think about the nervous system, these are the cells you think about. Uh, a neuron's job is to take input, whether from the environment or other cells, do some kind of processing and send information to another part of the body, which can be another neuron, or it could be another type of cell, such as muscles or your organs. So your typical neuron has this structure. The cell body is a soma where your standard cell stuff happens. This is where the nucleus is located and where proteins are made. Uh, And for more info on this and pretty much half of this episode, check out episode 136, The Cell. hey yo, It's very good. It's very good. He did this, not me. I didn't didn't even have to look up our own episodes. This is how good (laughs) this guy is. Anyway. Um, Dendrites are attached to the soma and they're little extensions that receive input from the Greek dendron, meaning tree. It reflects the shape of these dendrites. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, there's also the axon, which is the output of the neuron. It can be extremely long depending on its purpose. For example, the neurons that have to go between the spinal cord and your toes can be up to 1.5 meters long, which when I first what? read that really freaked me. It really freaked me so out. So there's like one, wait. Just long oh, so, ass. Oh. So it's I mean, like it's not one, one long thing? From yeah, your spinal but, cord to your toes? Yeah. I mean, it's not just one. It seems to be many because, a, you know, they're, they're cells. Uh, yeah. Yes. An interstate highway, if you will. Yes, but it's a long-ass interstate highway. Wow. Yeah, it's wild. I guess I didn't think about that. No, there's a lot of stuff I didn't think about that comes up here. I had a real, like, there were a couple of existential breakdowns for See, old LT. Know, like, like, br- like, brain and nerve stuff doesn't gross me out, like, in the least. 
I'm no? fascinated by this. It's when you start oh, talking about like the guts that I'm like, <laughs> nope. Get me oh, out of here. It, nervous stuff because it, it, I think because I associate it with like pain transfer and like, you know, all that stuff. I'm just like, it just, anyway. Lauren's really good at doing episodes that freak her out. And I have, <laughs> I tend to avoid the episodes that. Yeah, I know. It's because I'm a glutton for punishment. Anyway, again, thank you, Adam Large <laughs> for forcing me to do this. He didn't force me. I, I did it on my own. Um, while neurons generally have one axon, their ends can be branched to go to multiple targets. Um, so the ends of the axons are known as terminals, and they contain vesicles, which are cellular pockets that contain neurotransmitters. Um, electrophysiology is the study of electrical activity of living cells and tissues. And the electrical activity in neurons is due to the difference in concentration of ions between the inside of the cell and the outside of the cell. So changes in the permeability of these ions in the cell membrane results in changes in the voltage of the neuron. So at rest, the cell has more potassium inside and more sodium outside. If you ever need a mnemonic, think of a salty banana. A banana covered in salt would have a lot of potassium on the inside and a lot of sodium on the outside. (laughs) When I was reading this, I said out loud, huh, salty banana. And Steve, who was in the room with me, went, what? And I kept, I was still reading. (laughs) I was still reading and I did not answer him. And uh, I think even to this moment, he still does not know why I just exclaimed salty banana. And then nothing came of that. So he'll get it when I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when he listens to this episode. We could turn that into a cocktail, too. Ooh, yeah. Bartender, get me two salty bananas on the double quick. Like, we could go to some hipster bar once we're once we're uh. all fine to go, and we, like, ask for a salty banana, like, daily refresher, ask for, like, a salty banana, and when they're like, oh, um, I'm not quite sure what that is. So we could be And like, then we can roll our <laughs> eyes. <laughs> what do you mean? You don't know what a salty banana is? Clearly, you're not a neurologist. (laughs) And then we can laugh and laugh. And then we can leave. Because who wants to drink there? Nobody. Um, So. (laughs) Wow. No, it's a great bar. It's a great bar. Um, (laughs) Neuronal activity depends on two opposing forces. A chemical's tendency to move from areas of high concentration to areas of low concentration. And a charged particle's tendency to avoid particles of the same charge. So the balance of opposing forces creates an equilibrium, and due to the permeability of a neuron's membrane at rest, neurons typically have a resting voltage of negative 60 to negative 70 millivolts. Um, But you may be asking yourself, how do you get a neuron to be quote-unquote active? Uh, Neurons have specific sodium channels that only open when the voltage of a cell's membrane increases to a certain threshold. So if the voltage is raised enough, then these sodium channels open, causing the positively charged sodium ions to rush in, resulting in a rapid and even greater increase in the voltage. This is short-lived. As soon after this event, more potassium channels will open, causing potassium to exit the cell. Um, Potassium ions are also positively charged, and potassium leaving the cell causes the voltage to drop. So the rapid increase in voltage followed by a quick drop is what forms the characteristic spiking of an action potential. So that's how. Oh my gosh. Yeah. This is so much, this is already so much more involved than I thought. Oh yeah. No, it gets, we get deep in it. So axon potentials are typically generated at the hillock, which is the base of the axon where it's attached to the soma. 
Um, it is then propagated down the axon to the terminals. And keep in mind that the sodium potassium dance uh, he described above can be localized to a small region of the axon. And that as one axon section spikes, the movement of the ions causes a nearby region to spike and the ion shuffle travels down the axon. So they kind of like set each other off as they go. Like dominoes. Exactly. I mean, I guess. Um, So... (laughs) Uh, Next, I'm going to talk about glial cells. So this is where we should mention the role of myelination. Uh, Aside from neurons, the brain contains glial cells, and glial cells have many functions, but some are meant to wrap a lipid-based substance known as myelination around axons. Uh, this increases the efficiency of electrical transduction. Think of like electrical cables with a lot of insulation. Mm -hmm. Um, And myelinating glial cells are ogliodendrocytes in the brain and spinal cord. Yes. And Schwann cells in the rest of the body. So they're referred to as oligodendrocytes in the brain and then Schwann cells in the rest of the body. That's just like what they're called. Um, Demyelinating diseases are any diseases that cause a breakdown in myelination, which results in a reduction of the reliability of neuron communication. And for example, multiple sclerosis is probably the most common demyelinating disease. So myelation is like the insulation around the neuron? Yes. Yes. So around the, yeah. So it's like if your attic, if the insulate, if a squirrel digs in your attic. Yes. And absolutely. Uh, digs a hole in your insulation and mm-hmm. then the cold air is getting in and then bats are getting in and all this stuff. Um, you're attic isn't as safe as it was before yes although i would probably um reconfigure that that metaphor to say that the hot air is is getting out okay so your your house is not being as efficient okay so instead of stuff getting in it's more like things aren't all right being as efficient and getting they're getting out i think (laughs) we should really just have adam on the show all right Glia are also useful maintaining the brain's functions. Um, Astrocytes and satellite cells help form the blood-brain barrier and also regulate the extracellular environment and epidymal cells, creating cerebrospinal fluid. So, synapses. You've heard of these. Yeah, they fire. Anybody... Yeah, anybody who's seen a drug commercial, so pretty much every American who owns a TV, will be familiar with a synapse. Uh, synapses exist at the interface between an axon terminal with another neuron where the presynaptic neuron will release neurotransmitters, which we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, and that will bind onto receptors in the postsynaptic neuron. So when an action potential reaches the synaptic terminal, the action potential causes calcium channels to open and a chain reaction of chemicals happen that result in the release of neurotransmitters into the synaptic cleft where they bind to receptors in the postsynaptic neuron and does whatever that particular neurotransmitter does, which we'll talk about. Yep. <laughs> got it. <laughs> no, we got it. Don't worry. This gets, it, oh, it gets good. So uh, neurotransmitters, you've heard of them. They can be a variety of things, but are usually small molecules like amino acids and derivatives, but they can also be peptides, which are small proteins Mm -hmm. and even gases, which is kind of cool. They are broadly classified as excitatory, which increases a neuron's activity, inhibitory, which decreases a neuron's activity or modulatory. And he writes here where the scientist throws up their hands and says, it's complicated. (laughs) Um, To make it a little more complex, any given neurotransmitter often has many different receptors that it could bind to. So they're not like always connecting to the 
to the same ones, okay. I guess. Um, and so that means that some neurotransmitters can be excitatory or inhibitory depending on what receptor a postsynaptic neuron is using. So it depends on where the neurotransmitter is going. Um, so some examples of neurotransmitters include glutamate, the primary excitatory neurotransmitter in the brain and spinal cord, uh, GABA, G-A-B-A, or gamma aminobutyric acid, the primary inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain, and glycine, which is an inhibitory neurotransmitter in the spinal cord and brainstem. So uh, monoamines like dopamine, uh, mm-hmm. which is well known to be involved in rewards and motivation, but apparently is also very important for uh, motor control. Oh. Uh, noroadrenaline or noroepinephrine um, that helps with blood pressure, heart rate, and other organ functions. And we'll talk about uh, that more later. Um, dopamine, noroepinephrine, and epinephrine are actually part of the same chemical family and are derivatives of the amino acid tyrosine, an essential amino acid, i.e. those that the body can't produce by itself. Okay. Um, also serotonin. This is involved in sleep, memory, mood, and among other things. Oddly enough, a lot of our serotonin is involved in our GI tract to regulate our intestines. Hmm. And serotonin is derived from tryptophan, which you have definitely heard of around Thanksgiving, and that is another essential amino acid. Um, also histamine that has a broad range of functions, particularly in the endocrine or hormone system, such as metabolism, thermoregulation, and sleep. And those of us who take antihistamines. Yes. <laughs> keep us From the alive. months of April through September. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, other types of neurotransmitters include, um, and I'm going to try and pronounce this correctly because this is Adam's personal favorite neurotransmitter. Okay. It's called acetylcholine. Uh, this is a small molecule commonly seen at the neuromuscular junction where the nervous sister der- the nervous, the nervous sister. system. She's ready to give a speech. <laughs> but uh, she's so nervous. She's so nervous. <laughs> she's at the juncture. Oh, boy. <sighs> Sorry, Adam. Um, <laughs> where the nervous system directs the activity of the muscles. It's also involved in the regulation of body functions. And in the nervous system, uh, acetylcholine is involved in attention and memory. And nicotine is also known to mimic acetylcholine in the body, hmm. which is interesting to think about. Also, oxytocin, which is a peptide involved in socialization and sexual reproduction, and nitrous oxide, which is a gas that dilates the smooth muscle in blood vessels to increase blood flow. And uh, he writes, and for those who are celebrating an upcoming holiday, well, that holiday for us has come and gone, but you can celebrate any day of the week in New York State because it is legal here in the great state of New York State endocannabinoids, the natural molecule that binds to cannabinoid receptors. Uh, Cannabinoids are lipid, fat-based molecules and are interesting because they actually travel from postsynaptic neurons to presynaptic neuron and seem to be involved in regulating synaptic activity. So to no surprise, they seem to be involved in pain relief, stress response, appetite, and memory. Um, Also, opioids. uh, We have endogenous opioids, which are proteins that can have a variety of functions depending on the receptor type and its location in the body. Hmm. But also not surprisingly, they're associated with motivation, emotion, and pain. Uh, And if you want to hear more about those things, check out episode 92, Getting Lucy Goosey with Andres. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) We can't say it's very good because... All the time. Yeah. All right. Cool stats about this. The human brain has roughly 86 billion neurons. Uh, Start this was thinking up- about that, Lauren. 
Ugh, no, I can't. Um, this was actually updated recently from an estimate of $100 billion in case a Stickler Trivia Master is using old information. Mm, so keep okay. that in mind. Um, adult brains will have around 100 trillion synapses. Okay, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. Uh, most of our brain's neurons are with us at birth, but a three-year-old will have as twice as many synapses as an adult. Um, through learning and experience, some synapses will strengthen and others will wither, resulting in synaptic pruning, which is freaky to think about. Um, the most studied organism with the smallest number of neurons is the roundworm C. elegans. Males have 385 neurons and hermaphrodites have 302 neurons. It's the only organism that we know every neuron and how they are connected. And yet there is still so much more that we don't know about how their nervous system works. That's how complex the nervous system in any animal is. Wow. Including ourselves. Are they ourselves. like super, super teeny tiny? Uh, I would think so. It's a roundworm. So yeah, they're Ugh. probably pretty small. Blech. I'm not looking uh, it up. No, <laughs> neither am I. Everybody find that out on your own in this one. Okay. So we're going to talk a little bit about Nobel Prizes in medicine having to do with this. Okay. So in 1906, you had Santiago Ramón y Cajal and Camilo Golgi uh, in recognition of their work on the structure of the nervous system. The Golgi yes. apparatus. Yes, the Golgi apparatus. How so, come the other guy didn't get anything named for him? I don't know. I Well, you'll see why. So this apparently is the story of the feud between two scientists at the turn of the century, Santiago Ramón y Cajal from Spain and Camilo Golgi from Italy. At, time, at the time, how neurons were organized in the brain was still unknown. The two main theories were the reticular theory, which proposed cells were physically interconnected into like a web, and the neuron doctrine, which proposes neurons were individual units. Golgi supported the reticular theory, but Cajal subscribed to the neuron doctrine. What broke the stalemate was a key technology. Golgi had developed a staining procedure to label neurons in brain tissue. And Cajal was able to take this technique and prove it and spent six years studying brain tissue stains, leading to the conclusion that neurons are in fact individual units. Hmm. The Nobel Committee then jointly gave the award to both Golgi and Cajal for providing the neuron doctrine, despite Golgi attempting to do the opposite. Mm. Their rivalry extended to the, their acceptance speeches, with Golgi still defending the reticular theory and both scientists delivering pointed barbs at each other. So, um, then in 1932, we have Sir Charles Sherrington and Edgar Adrian for their discoveries regarding the functions of neurons. Uh, Sherrington was a British physiologist who studied communication between the brain, spinal cord, and muscles. His 1906 book, The Integrative action of the nervous system consisted of 10 lectures including an introduction of the word synapse description of reflexes and the organization of the nervous system and neural circuitry this cemented the neuron doctrine and laid the foundation for the field he was awarded the nobel for his work in muscle control and reflexes of note is sherrington's law of reciprocal innervation first proposed by rene descartes whereby the muscles act as opposing pairs to produce movement, one of our muscles will increase activity while the other will decrease in activity. So if you bend your arm at the elbow, you may notice that w when your biceps contract, your triceps extend and vice versa. Um, and then we hear more about that later. But um, Adrian, Edgar Adrian, was an ele English electrophysiologist who studied the electrical currents and neurons. He developed a method to study the tiny electrical signals in the brain and used that to study the activity of nerve fibers in response to stimuli. In one story, he was recording from a frog's eye and noticed a ton of activity, except nothing was going on in the dark room. After some consideration, he noticed that the nerve was sending signals in response to his movements. 
So he studied these patterns and compared them to those of stimuli on the skin and developed theories of how neurons encode sensory information. In addition, he worked on the conduction of action potentials, including the fact they seem to be all or nothing. If the sensory stimulus hits a threshold, then the resulting axon potential triggers and you don't see half or doubly large spikes. So then in 1936, we have Henry Dale and Otto Lowy for their discoveries relating to chemical transmissions of nerve impulses. I think it's Louvi. Yes, it is. Excuse me. Otto Louvi. Uh, Henry Dale and Otto Louvi were interested in communication between neurons. At the time, the debate was whether neurons communicated chemically or electrically. And people already knew that you could use either chemicals or electricity to stimulate tissues, but nobody knew what neurons naturally did. One scientist, John Carew Eccles, we'll see him later, believed neurons communicated too quickly for it to be chemical. So the English Dale was interested in these potential chemicals, the neurotransmitters. He helped identify the chemical acetylcholine as an agent that can stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system. More on that later. But how to tell if this is what's happening in the body. So the German Otto Lovi had a great idea, although apparently he took an odd path to figure it out. The story he tells is that on Easter 1921, he dreamt of doing a specific experiment. He woke up in the middle of the night, wrote it down, and then he went back to sleep. Unfortunately, in the morning, he couldn't figure out what his hastily drawn half-asleep notes meant, but thankfully, he had the same dream the next night, and when that happened, he quickly got out of bed and ran to the lab before he could forget the details. (laughs) So, that's what he says. So... A little bit of squeamishness ahead, so if, you, if you're if you not cool with this, skip ahead maybe like, you know, one or two bumps. But Louvi's experiment was to take hearts of two frogs into separate containers filled with saline solution. One of the hearts still had the vagus nerve, which controls heart rate, attached, and one didn't. He electrically stimulated the vagus nerve of the one heart, causing the heart to beat slower, which is nothing new. But he then took the saline solution from that heart and poured it onto the other heart, which caused the heart to also beat slower, showing that there was a soluble substance being released that controls the muscle. And it couldn't be an electrical signal that somehow jumped across the room to the other heart. So this substance he called vagustoff or vagus substance. And uh, that was found to be the acetylcholine that Dale was working on. Jeez. Yeah. It's kind of cool. A um, couple more. 1963, John Carew Eccles, Alan Hodgkin, and Andrew Huxley for their discoveries concerning the ionic mechanisms involved in excitation and inhibition in the peripheral and central portions of the nerve cell membrane. So, sounds John important. Carew, it does sound impor- important. So, John Carew Eccles is back, baby. Eccles <laughs> was an Australian scientist who was interested in study- studying synapses and to keep it as simple as possible and inspired by the work of Sherrington, he studied the stretch reflex. So this reflex contracts your muscles in response to being stretched. Uh, In your muscles, there are muscle spindle sensory neurons that sense a stretch and send a signal to the motor neurons in your spine to contract the muscle. This creates resistance to the stretch and keeps you from overstretching the muscle. Uh, The motor neuron also sends a signal to inhibit contraction in the opposite muscle. And this is important for posture where you're constantly experiencing forces on your body like gravity. But it's probably best known for the patellar reflex, which is when your doctor is testing when they hit your knee with your tiny hammer mm-hmm. and then your, your leg kicks. Um, so in the test, they strike your patellar tendon in your relaxed leg, causing a stretch and a reflexive contraction in your quadriceps and the relaxation in your hamstring, resulting in a kick. Why did they uh, do I, that? I know, right? <laughs> I, I don't know. So like, he, It's 2021. Why? 
Why are we checking that? I, I think because they want to make sure that your reflexes are working. Because it's important. I don't know. <laughs> it's fun to do, though. Um, it feels weird. Um, so he studied the postsynaptic voltages in these neurons by electrically stimulating the muscle spindle, um, which is a bit more scientific than using a hammer. Uh, and he saw that the motor neuron produced small bumps of increasing voltage in the quadriceps and small dips of decreasing voltage in the hamstrings. But one little bump was never enough to cause an action potential. He had to generate enough to sum together to cr- cause a contraction. So likewise, those little dips would subtract from neurons voltage and make the neuron less likely to fire. Um, also, the Englishman Alan Hodgkin and Andrew Huxley worked together to study nerve impulses. Their model of choice was the squid giant axon, not the giant squid axon. This was just a big old axon that you could find in a normal ass squid, though it stands to reason that the giant squid giant axon is also probably pretty big. <laughs> So squids have a giant axon that helps control its tentacles in an escape response, which is an evolutionary development that lets them flee as quickly as possible. So it's a Mm. reflex. They don't like think like run away. It's just like their body does it. So this axon is around half a millimeter in diameter, which is roughly the thickness of a thread. So this might sound small, but we're talking about cells here, which is something that you usually need a microscope to see. So, Hodgkin and Huxley studied the role of ions and action potentials using a pretty useful technique known as voltage clamp. This is a nifty method of using electrodes to measure the voltage of a neuron and apply an amount of current to keep it at a specific voltage. Uh, So this lets experimenters control the voltage of a neuron while manipulating other aspects of the experiment by seeing how much current is needed to keep the voltage steady, which gives an idea of what the neuron is trying to do, basically. Are you falling asleep? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought I saw you. I thought I saw you drifting off. I wanted to be like, we don't have to do this today. <laughs> it's okay. We can do it another day. I was just picturing, picturing all of these. Oh yeah, you got to picture it. Yeah. Once we get to the brain, we'll we'll get there. We'll get, the brain is much more easier to <laughs> take in. Okay. So basically, by using biology, physics, and some math, they came up with a model of action potentials known as the Hodgkin-Huxley model. So the basis of this model is still used in modeling neurons, and their work in ion conductance led the way for future work in ion channels. And then in 1970, you have Julius Axelrod, Ulf von Euler, and Bernard Katz. Yeah, I'm into all of these names. Right? Ulf von Euler. That's the name of my dog. No, it's not. I'm sorry, Ulf. He's probably still alive. Oh, geez. I'm sorry. Um, For their discoveries concerning the humoral transmitters in the nerve terminals and the mechanism for their storage, release, and inactivation. So we now know that neurons release chemical neurotransmitters and that individual excitory bumps are small and needed to be added together, but we still don't know what is actually going on. Mm -hmm. So the German-born British biophysicist Bernard Katz studied these little bumps and saw that at the smallest, they were the same size and that the larger ones seemed to be integer multiples of the little ones. Okay. So this gave the idea of quantal release of neurotransmitters that a neuron released specific sized packets of neurotransmitters. Also, the Swedish physiologist Ulf von Euler found that neurotransmitters specifically noradrenaline and norepinephrine were stored in cellular vesicles, which are little pockets inside of cells. Meanwhile, the American biochemist Julius Axelrod also studied the release and reuptake of neurotransmitters, including adrenaline and noradrenaline. He showed that neurotransmitters don't just float away, but there are reuptake proteins in cells that grab the neurotransmitters to reuse, and there were also enzymes meant to break down neurotransmitters. 
He was part of the research in uh, monoamine oxidase, uh, one of these enzymes, which leads to a class of drugs referred to as monoamine oxidase inhib- inhibitors, or MAOIs. MAOIs. Yes. See, when you were talking about the exciters and the inhibitors, I was trying to think of like, we've heard of these in like drug commercials. Yes. Yes, exactly. Which is such an American thing. But yeah, we've definitely heard of these. <laughs> that's how we know so, of it. <laughs> that's how we know. Uh, MAOIs are common antidepressants. Um, another common antidepressant targets the reuptake of serotonin known as selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or SSRIs. 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 Exactly. Yeah. So they didn't, so, were they working together, these three guys? Or this was like three separate? This seems to be three separate things. Okay. And they were all awarded the Nobel Prize that year for those things. How about that? Yeah, there you go. Um, and then in 1991, you have Bert Sackman and Erwin Neher, the function of single ion channels in cells. That's what they got it for. Uh, the German physiologist Bert Sackman and biophysicist Erwin Neher took uh, the previous voltage clamp to a new level with a method to study electrical properties of individual neurons, cells, or even just patches of membrane in living tissue, which is known as the patch clamp method. The basic principle is taking a pipette with a microscopic tip filled with saline solution and poking a tiny enough hole in the cell membrane to cause the fofolipids, fofolipids, wow, to reattach around the pipette, giving you access to either the whole cell or just a piece of it. So these two men were able to use this to study individual ion channels, and they were the first to record from single ion channels in a live cell. And this is still used today, apparently. Um, so Adam does mention that he said, I just want to note that for the most part, all of these mentioned dudes not only work together, but you can draw lineages across generations of scientists. Okay. At the time, if you wanted to study electrophysiology, you trained under the people who came up with the technique. So it's a common joke to bring up what branch of the family tree you are, which is kind of cute. <laughs> um, so let's talk about brains, the big stuff. So we're going to talk about subtypes of the nervous system. So you have your central nervous system or your CNS. That's the brain and the spinal cord. That's Mm -hmm. the control center. Then you have the peripheral nervous system, PNS. Those are the nerves that carry signals. This is a family show. Uh, Julia, maybe get your head out of the gutter. (laughs) The PNS. She sounds like you're like... English is not your second, it's not your I first know, language, and I you're know. trying to pronounce that word. It is the pianist. Uh, <laughs> we are learning about the, the pianist. Uh, oh, God. I'm so sorry, Adam. Okay. <laughs> We're just going to refer to it as the peripheral nervous system so I don't, you know, like dissolve into giggles from here on out. So, this, the, the peripheral nervous system are the nerves that carry signals between the body and the central nervous system. But apparently we can go deeper into the peripheral nervous system. So we have the somatic nervous system that controls voluntary movements. Uh, this is also acetylcholine as the primary controller of muscles. Uh, we also have the autonomic nervous system, which controls involuntary movements like breathing and heart rate. And then we can get even deeper into the uh, autonomic nervous system, like the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response that dilates blood vessels in lungs, increases heart rate, slows digestion, etc. And key neurotransmitters for this are acetylcholine, norepinephrine, and epinephrine. You also have the parasympathetic nervous system, which is uh, he he writes it's kinda, here. Rest in, it's kind of sympathetic. It's, it's kind. It's like um, <laughs> it feels bad, but like won't say anything. <laughs> 
Um, he put in quotes here, rest and digest, feed and breed, or feed in another F word. Uh, <laughs> this is... <laughs> Uh, this is opposite to the sympathetic nervous system. This slows the heart, increases digestion, etc. The main neurotransmitter for this is acetylcholine as well. Also, bonus, you have the enteric nervous system. This controls the gastrointestinal tract and is your second brain that operates quasi-independently from the brain. I'm uncomfortable with that concept. So when you, so when you say, <laughs> so I would make the argument that when you say, my gut is telling me, uh, hey, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Don't tell me something's the second brain. Don't, you have a second I'm brain. Thirty-six years old. Don't tell me there's something that's the second <laughs> brain, and then just breeze right past it and just keep talking about axions or whatever packets. You clearly have not been. <laughs> I mean, it's that's all he wrote, my dude. He wrote common neurotransmitters are acetylcholine, dopamine, and serotonin. Adam, you're going to need to write us back because we are going to lie awake until we hear more about this quote unquote second brain no, that apparently lives in my guts. I want us to remove <laughs> all of this. Remove all reference the- to the second brain. Second brain. <laughs> I mean, it's apparently really, he's got his PhD. <laughs> um, and then here uh, he did include um, the pinky and the brain uh, song about the brain and the brain's parts. And it's very good. <laughs> and we'll have it for the thinking music for the, for the quiz, but Terrific. it's also in, there's also embedded in the book so you can read it when you see the link. So, um, the brain itself is actually composed of several different structures. Uh, we have the telencephalon or the cerebrum, and it's probably what people think of when they think of the brain, the big wrinkly thing inside of our skulls. Um, it, (laughs) it comprises the forebrain along with the, uh, diencephalon. So the diencephalon is the thalamus and the hypothalamus, which is deep inside the brain interior. Um, The thalamus is composed of several nuclei that play a role in processing and relaying information throughout the brain. And while we're always learning more about what it does, we do know it plays a role in motor and sensory processing as well as consciousness. So while the hypothalamus be small, it also be mighty. Uh, this, (laughs) This little region is important in linking the nervous system and the endocrine system, which means it plays a role in hormone regulation and everything that entails, including hunger, thirst, sleep, body temperature, and emotion. Uh, the cerebellum is the little brain, which exists in the back of the brain. So we now have, we're up to three brains. Uh, no, the most common function of this is balance, but it's also likely to be very important in motor learning. Uh, there's the mesencephalon or the midbrain, part of the brain stem, along with the pons and medulla. And the midbrain is closely linked to the motor system as it is the location of the dopamine-producing substantia nigra and also involved in reward processing with the ventral tegmental area, which is another dopamine area. So the pons and the medulla oblongata. The medulla uh, oblongata. (laughs) You cannot think of, you can't not think of the water boy whenever you hear medulla oblongata. Uh, That is the lower part of the brainstem as it transitions into the spinal cord. And the brainstem is basically the part of the brain devoted to essential functions as it contains nuclei for most of the cranial nerves and controls all of the behaviors that keep us living without us having to think about it, such as equilibrium, breathing, sleep, etc., um, pons is Latin for bridge, uh, which appropriate for an area that runs several neural pathways between the brain, the cerebellum and the medulla. And the medulla is the control center for our cardiovascular and respiratory systems. So you've got some cranial nerves. 
There are 12 of them, in fact, unless you want to be edgy, in which case there are 13 cranial nerves. <laughs> uh, that's what he writes. Um, so uh, you've probably heard a bunch by now from the census episode of Misinfo. Um, but he is going to list them and I'm going to read them to you. So you have olfactory, smell, optic, sight, oculomotor, which is most eye movement, trochlear, which is inward eye movement, uh, trigeminal, which is face sensation and chewing, abducens, outward eye movements, facial, such as facial expressions or tastes. See episode 188. It's very good. Vestibulocochlear, balance and hearing. Check out episode 185 for more about hearing glossopharyngeal which is oral sensations taste and saliva you have the vagus which is organs blood pressure heart rate accessory shoulders and neck and hypoglossal which is tongue movement i'm not a fan of the phrase oral sensations (laughs) (laughs) it's a very scientific phrase julia i mean get on board this i'm surprised there wasn't like a wine spritzer called that in the 80s Oh, I almost guarantee there was. Oh, I bet there was. Ew. You just want um, your Virginia Slims. I just want and my Virginia Slims. on your oral sensation. <laughs> it was very low calorie. I love it. It's so low calorie. It was like 10 calories. Um, you could drink as many as you wanted and not gain a single pound. Um, nerve zero is the terminal nerve, but some speculate it's involved in hormones and pheromones. So the cerebrum is the largest part of the brain and is composed of two hemispheres, which are linked by the corpus callosum, a nerve tract that sends information between the hemispheres. So the cerebrum is comprised of gray matter, which is the location of cell bodies of neurons, and the white matter, which is the myelinated axons of neurons, since myelin is made of lipids and fat is white. Mm. So the cerebral cortex is the outer area of the cerebrum and is composed of four lobes, which itself, which itself contains individual cortices. So you've got frontal, like you always talk about your frontal mm-hmm. lobe. Uh, it contains motor cortices and is involved in planning, motivation, reward, and attention, basically the executive cortex. You have the parietal, which contains the somatosensory or touch cortices. It integrates sensory information, spatial senses, and navigation. You have temporal, which is associated with processing sensory input and attaching meaning, such as language and emotion comprehension, as well as auditory processing and long-term memory. And then you have your occipital, which is pretty much entirely vision, including primary visual cortex. Um, A glaringly obvious feature of the brain is obviously the wrinkles. Um, These folds increase surface area and the ridges are known as gyri or singular gyrus. And the channels are known as sulci or singular sulcus. So if you imagine a sheet of paper that you then crumple up, you can see how you can fit more surface area inside the volume. Whoa. Yeah. So there are also subcortical structures such as the hippocampus, which is associated with memory, particularly consolidation of short-term to long-term memory and spatial memory and navigation. It is named that because it looks like a seahorse or hippocampus in Greek. That's terrific. I love that. I I didn't know that. So then you have the basal ganglia, which are associated with motor control, habit learning, working memory, decision-making, and motivation. You have the olfactory bulb. Uh, He describes this as the first stop on the smelly train. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Adam. Oh, Adam. Um, And then you have the amygdala, which is Greek for almond. It's mainly associated with emotion, but also memory. Because that's what it's shaped like. 
Right. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you may have already noticed a lot of brain areas are physical descriptions of what they look like. So we've known about these areas long before we knew what they did. So temporal lobe is by your temples. The thing that looks like an almond, that's what we'll call it. The dopamine producing <laughs> area, the substantia nigra, yep, a black substance. Norepinephrine is made by the locus coroleus, which has a blue color. And he says his favorite may be the st- substantia innominata, the unnamed substance. Uh, future versions of this book that he has provided for us may give a more comprehensive list. All right. Wait, let's talk about they some- have something. Wait. <laughs> the substantia in nominata. So we have a thing in our brain called unnamed substance. Yes. In Greek. But yes, it's like, eh, it's got no name. <laughs> so to recap, we have a total Two of three brains. brains. Three brains. <laughs> three brains. And something inside of it that just goes, I don't know. Okay, here's some cool facts. Adult brains weigh about three pounds or 1.36 kilograms. Human brains triple in size by the time they are one years old. By the time they are two years old, the brain is about 80% of their adult size, and it isn't fully formed until age 25. Uh, Your brain uses 20% of your body's oxygen and about 20% of the body's energy in the form of glucose to generate ATP. But children's brains can use up to 60% of their body's energy. So what that makes me think is if you want to tire your kid out to make sure they go to sleep, yes, give them (laughs) math puzzles. (laughs) (laughs) Also, 60% of the brain is fat. So there you go. So when you you could call somebody, hey, fat brain, and um, you're you're right. Is that that a common greeting? (laughs) Hey, fat brain. No, it's going to be a new one. It's going to be our next t-shirt. Um, no, we're not going to do that. Or maybe. Uh, maybe your next reclaim t-shirt, Adam. It. Yeah, we're going to reclaim it. Um, sperm whales have the largest brain at 18 pounds or 8 kilograms, but have low brain to body weight ratios. The animals with larger ratios are small birds and rodents, as you can imagine. Uh, the retina is the only part of the central nervous system that can be observed non-invasively through an ophthalmoscope, Ooh, okay. which is the little flashlight thing that optometrists mm-hmm. stick in your face really close. So during development, the retina and the optic nerve are formed from the embryonic diencephalon, which means it is part of the central nervous system. Many of our sensory and motor ax- axons dissociation where they cross the midline partway through their root, not to be confused by desiccate, Decussate is named for deca, which refers to the Roman numeral X or 10, which itself is a crossing of lines. Yeah, yeah. So that means that your left hemisphere is in charge of the right side of your body and vice versa. You've heard of this. Mm -hmm. So while we're not sure why, a recent hypothesis is that during vertebrate evolution, the body somehow ended up twisted 180 degrees, which is freaky dicky to think about. Um, and then he writes, you may not like it, but this is what peak performance looks like. Just kidding. Let's not support anthropocentrism. <laughs> it, you know how like left-handers don't get enough like notice in, in the world. So they wear a lot of t-shirts that say things like, well, if your left brain controls the right side of your body, only left-handed people are in their right mind. Yes. Yeah. Lefties are really uh, proud proud of being left-handed but i will say i uh, from anecdotal evidence left left-handers that i have known are more creative thinkers like they're better mm. at figuring out puzzles and things 
Um, at least than I am. And that's, you know, again, anecdotal evidence. I'm not very good at puzzles. So, but I have noticed that they're more creative people. Um, so let's talk about some Nobel prizes in medicine for the brain. So in 1944, we have Joseph Erlinger and Howard Gasser for their discoveries relating to the highly differentiated functions of single nerve fibers. Erlinger and Gasser were American physiologists who came up with a way to observe action potentials. Uh, This allowed them to identify the basic phases of an action potential, the degree of excitability of different neurons, and discovered that nerve fiber thickness was directly proportional to the velocity of action potentials. That is basically to say thicker fibers transmit action potentials faster. All right. Um, In 1949, you have Walter Hess for his discovery of the functional organization of the interbrain as a coordinator of the activities of the internal organs and Igas Moniz for his discovery of the therapeutic value of leucotomy in certain psychoses. So to start, Walter Hess was a Swiss physiologist who was interested in the function of the diencephalon. Here we go again with a little bit of grossness, just FYI. He placed electrodes in different locations in a cat hypothalamus in an awake cat and noticed that he could elicit different behaviors from the cat depending on where he stimulated. So he was able to find areas that control emotion as well as bodily functions such as blood pressure, thirst, urination, and even complex behaviors like curling up and going to sleep, which is very like Dr. Frankenstein. Wow. So... Now we're going to get to a controversial one, and this one gets a little gross. So Antonio Igas Moniz, uh, whose full name being, and I do not speak Portuguese, so I'm going to butcher this, Antonio Caetano de Ebru Frier Egas Moniz, was a Portuguese neurologist that was interested in surgical treatments for psychological conditions. Moniz believed psychological disorders were due to haywire activity in the frontal lobe, so he developed a procedure to sever the white matter in the area. Or lobotomy. It was known as the leucotomy. So his research found that patients that suffered from psychosis were calmer after such a procedure, and he even developed a device, or the leucotome, which was basically a mini egg beater that was inserted into the brain to break up white matter. I know. Uh, The procedure would be adapted in the United States and renamed into a more familiar term, which is lobotomy. Um, These procedures were common in the 1940s and 1950s. About 40,000 people in the United States underwent a lobotomy. It was an extremely crude procedure, and it fell out of favor as pharmaceutical inventions were developed, although some countries were slower than others to ban the procedure. Uh, What is important to take from this was that it was an extremely invasive and permanent procedure meant to treat those who were deemed psychotic, but we need raise the question on who is making this call. Just like women were more often diagnosed with hysteria 50 years prior, women were more often the ones who were lobotomized. If your male husband and your male doctor thought that you were a bit too emotional and there was a procedure that would calm you down and make you more cooperative, well, that's an easy call to make. In general, it was as much of a method of control, particularly in women and women of color, as it was a medical procedure. Uh, In light of the history of lobotomies and the questionable myopic judgment of awarding a Nobel Prize to the procedure, there have been calls to rescind Moniz's prize, but that has yet to happen. I think famously, um, Rosemary Kennedy, who was the sister of uh, John F. Kennedy. Yes. She mm-hmm. grew up like having seizures and like some other like violent mood swings, they called it. And her mm-hmm. father arranged for her to get a prefrontal lobotomy when she was like 23 years old. And oh my it gosh. basically 
permanently incapacitated her for the rest of her life and then it was like a big secret in the family like they Mm -hmm. like sent her off to like an institution in wisconsin or something and like isolated her from her siblings and family and like it was a it was a huge secret yeah it was terrible bad call joe yeah call super bad call it wasn't the last one but pretty (laughs) bad call Um, So in 1949, you've got Roger Sperry for his discovery concerning the functional specialization of the cerebral hemispheres. And then you have David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel for their discoveries concerning information processing in the visual system. So David Hubel and Torsten Wiesel were a Canadian and Swedish neurophysiology duo that were interested in studying vision by researching cats' eyes. One of their contributions was in understanding how neurons in the primary visual cortex react to stimuli. So by placing electrodes in V1 and showing the cat various patterns of light and dark shapes on a screen, they saw some cells cared about the angle of lines. Others really liked corners and edges, and others liked movements in a specific direction. This work helped build out a model of vision where individual regions of the brain have separate processing steps. So since then, Wiesel has been a human rights advocate, especially at the intersection between human rights, technology, and scientific inquiry. Um, I'm going to just, okay. All right. I just wanted to make sure that I wasn't like going too long, but I only have one more page here. Okay. Um, Roger Sperry was an American neuropsychologist who was interested in the communication between the hemispheres of the brain. And he worked in split brain patients, people who have had their corpus callosum, the white matter that sends signals between the hemispheres cut in a procedure known (gasps) as a corpus coloscotomy. Uh, This is used to alleviate seizures and is still used today, although as a last resort. Yeah, geez. So Sperry found that cats that had their uh, corpus callosum and optic nerve severed, he could teach the cat different things based on which eye was open. So if he taught a task to the cat with their left eye open and right eye closed and then asked the cat to do the task with their right eye open and left eye closed, it would have no idea what was going on. (gasps) So he also did similar things with monkeys and humans and ultimately determined that each hemisphere is, quote, a conscious system in its own right, perceiving, thinking, remembering, reasoning, willing, and emoting all at a characteristically human level. And both the left and right hemisphere may be conscious simultaneously in different, even in mutually conflicting mental experiences that run along in parallel. Is that not the freaky deakiest thing you've ever heard in your whole goddamn life? So... This work let him develop an idea of the lateralization of brain function, that certain functions may be focusing in one or the other hemispheres, like you mentioned before, like left and right brain Mm -hmm. kind of thing. So a big example in lateralization is that left hemisphere is the predominant language hemisphere, in right-handers at least. So if Sperry showed the patient a word in their right visual field, their information that would go to the left hemisphere and the patient could repeat the word. If the word was in the left visual field, the information would go to the right hemisphere. But since the corpus callosum was cut, that information couldn't get to the language centers and the patient couldn't say what they saw. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. And he says there is a ton on split brain studies that get even cooler and should really be its own episode, which, shoot, I would love that and also be freaked out by it. That's just like my thing. I mean, I did do like I did an episode on space and like, the sea and stuff. Maybe I'm just like, I don't know, I'm broken. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. All right. D- down to our last couple. So we've got, in 1986, we've got Stanley Cohen and Rita Levi Montalcini, which is a great name. 
uh, for their discoveries of growth factors. So Stanley Cohen, who is an American biochemist, and Rita Levi-Montalcini, an Italian neurobiologist who studied nerve growth factors, a chemical that directs uh, nervous tissue development in embryos. Um, but he says, I mostly mention it because Rita Levy Montalcini is a boss and really needs a spotlight in a more dedicated episode. He says, I mean, she was a female Jewish scientist in Italy during World War II and did her research while hiding from the Nazis. So she sounds like she's amazing. All right. In 2004, we have Linda Buck and Richard Axel for their discoveries of odorant receptors and the organization of the olfactory system. So in 2004, American biologists Linda Buck and Richard Axel won the prize for their work in olfaction. They identified the genes that correspond to olfactory receptors, of which there are about a thousand of them, and saw that each odor sensor neuron only produced one kind of olfactory receptor protein, and they all sent their information to the same place in the olfactory bulb. So this allowed for a model of olfaction where odorants activated specific receptors in a stereotyped way, which the brain could then decode. Okay. This is basically explaining how those those systems worked. And then finally, in 2014, you have John O'Keefe, Mae Britt Moser, and Edvard Moser for their discoveries of cells that constitute a positioning system in the brain. So John O'Keefe was awarded the prize for his research back in the 70s, and he found that a certain hippocampal cells in rats were active only when the rat was in a specific part of the room, and this led to the knowledge of place cells. So 30 years later, the Norwegian neuroscientists Maybrit and Edvard Moser studied the enterhinal cortex, which is a major input to the hippocampus, and that showed that there were cells that also cared about where the rat is, but weren't as specific. So, in fact, the cells fired at specific regularly spaced locations within the room, and they later found that the cells fired with respect to a hexagonal grid pattern, leading the cells to be dubbed grid cells. So this work provided a framework for understanding how the brain represents its location within the world, which is, like, so cool to think about and also very freaky to think about. So that is, again, a very brief overview of neurology a basic intro to neuroscience if you will by adam and then adam um also wrote us a quiz and i did not read the answers to this so you and i are going to take this quiz together all right terrific um so here we go it's called my mom said watching tv would melt my brain trivia about the times where the peanut butter that is neuroscience is mixed with the chocolate that is pop culture (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready? Go for it. Here we go. Question number one. When scientists discovered a protein in the retina that accounts for rapid processing, they named it after what Pokemon? Question number two. A hypnic or hypnagogic jerk is a common phenomenon that has affected about 70% of people. What happens during hypnic jerks? You may have to go deep to remember. Question number three. The 1990 movie Awakening, starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro, is based on a book by the same name from 1973. Who was the author of Awakenings? Someone you might find at a haberdashery. Question number four. What Game of Thrones character had a bit of controversy over whether or not they experienced the condition known as expressive aphasia? Question number five. The world of the TV show and film, Westworld, is known for the use of androids who act as staff at an amusement park and are considered to be indistinguishable from humans. What mathematician and computer scientist developed a test to tell human from computer? Question number six. 
The Pixar film features five emotions as characters. Name them. Question number seven. Tetrodotoxin, a neurotoxin that prevents action potentials by blocking sodium channels, stops you from controlling your muscles and causes you to stop breathing. It is a common toxin in media, such as one of the more sobering episodes of The Simpsons, in which Homer faces his mortality. What animal is a well-known source of tetrodotoxin? Question number eight. The movie Lucy is one of several movies that aims to suggest what would happen if we were able to use 100% of our brain. What is the commonly claimed amount that we use? Question number nine. This one's for Julia. What board game, quote, for your whole brain, was released in 1998 and had mini games involving trivia, drawing, word puzzles, and charades, among others? And finally, question number 10. This one's for Lauren. What American artist, famous for painting large photorealistic portraits, is unable to recognize faces, a condition known as prosopagnosia? We'll give you and us a minute to think about it, and we'll be back with some guesses and answers. And now, the part of the plane, performed by the plane. Yes. Neocortex frontal lobe. Brainstem! Brainstem! Hippocampus neural node, right hemisphere. Pons and cortex visual. Brainstem! Brainstem! Sylvian fissure pineal, left hemisphere. Cerebellum left, cerebellum right. Synapse hypothalamus, striatum dendrite. On fibers, matter gray. Central tegmental pathway, temporal lobe. White core matter for brain skull. Central fissure, cord spinal, parietal. Diameter, meningeal vein, medulla oblongata, and lobe limbic. Microelectrodes. The brain. That ought to keep the little squirts happy. Yeah. Okay, I've been scribbling furiously, and I've only circled three out of the ten answers. Oh, boy. So Okay. Well, we can work together on these. So yeah, this is great. Good. All right. Uh, question number one. When scientists discovered a protein in the retina that accounts for rapid processing, they named it after what Pokemon? Okay. Rapid processing. That means it's quick. It's quick. (laughs) All right. Well, there is a Pokemon called Rapidash. Okay. That's the first thing that came to my mind. But that seems silly. Um, Who? I mean, you're alone in this. I do not know. Pokemon. I think like Pikachu would be more fun, right? If they called it that. Yeah. You want to go with? Pikachu? Yeah. (laughs) Okay. All right. I'm going to try and cover the answers here. Hold on. Let me see if I can. Okay. Uh, It's Pikachu. (gasps) Yay! (laughs) That's a much. See? That's fun. Yeah. Okay. So it's called. That's a fun question. (laughs) That is a fun question. Thank you, Adam. So I'm like, I'm like covering my hands over this stuff. Pikachurin, aka Agrinol, 
or EGF-like fibronectin type 3 and laminin G-like domain-containing protein, or egg flam, was named as such because of Pikachu's lightning-fast moves and shocking electric effects. Nice. Egg flam. I think Adam made this whole episode up. <laughs> he did. He did. <laughs> you know, we gave him too we're much gonna, time and he, he was like... We're going to get to number 10 and realize this was just a record like, the whole time. In your, in your faces. Adam is actually faces. a shock jock DJ from Milwaukee. <laughs> Adam is like in your faces. <laughs> Other trivia podcast say There's a second brain that controls your stomach. They believed it and they put it out, and <laughs> they recorded it and put it out in the world. <laughs> we would do it too. We would just put it out there. Yeah. All right. Question number two: A hypnic or hypnagogic jerk is a common phenomena that has affected about seventy percent of people. What happens during hypnic jerks? You yeah, may have I to go deep one. to remember. Okay, yeah, what I is it? That's when you're falling asleep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Hold. Yeah. Uh, a hypnic or hypnagogic jerk is a common phenomena that has. Okay. Uh, it's a sensation of falling before going to sleep. Yeah, we knew that. Yep. Uh, scientists don't know why they happen or why some people experience it routinely. Possibilities involve. A drop in blood pressure, anxiety, or fatigue. So that's how I know I'm. That's how I know I'm tired. Like yes. if we're laying in bed or like watching a show or something, and then mm-hmm. I my legs do that. I'm like, all right, I'm. You got one more minute. Yeah, <laughs> you got one more Countdown minute. To show on. me something good. I'm going to sleep. Okay. Question number three: The 1990 movie Awakenings, which I love. Oh my gosh, I love that movie. Oh, good. Starring Robin Williams and Robert De Niro is based on a book of the same name from 1973. Who was the author of Awakenings? Someone you might find at a haberdashery. Do you know? I mean, I thought if it was Oliver Sacks. Okay. What? Um, well, when he said haberdashery, I wrote down Hatman. Ooh, that's a good guess. <laughs> <laughs> go with your answer if you know okay, what it is. We're going to go with, with Oliver Sacks. Okay, hold on. Uh... It is Oliver Sacks. Uh, Sacks is probably best known for his book, The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, which was titled after ah, a case study see, of a patient. The hat part. Yeah, yeah. There it is. There it is. Uh, it titled after a case study of a patient with visual agnosia, the Im- inability to recognize visual objects. If you want to hear more about pareidolia, the ability to see faces everywhere, wow. check out episode two. Yeah. It's very good. It was so long ago. Oh, my God. We were so holding ago. our microphones with our own two hands. With our, with our two hands like a couple of animals. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Question uh, number four, what Game of Thrones character had a bit of controversy over whether or not the experience of the condition known as expressive aphasia i think i know what this is is it hodor i think it's gonna be hodor okay because aphasia to me like if i'm deciphering the root word it means like the inability to speak or like and that's like the only word that he would say over and over so yeah yeah, i as a as a non-godder um that's what they call (laughs) themselves right um my guess is hodor yeah, I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go with you on that one. Okay, uh, Hodor. Yes, expressive aphasia is described as an acquired condition resulting in the inability to use language to express themselves. Also known as Broca's aphasia, it was first detailed by Pierre Paul Broca when he met a patient who could only say the word "tan." Wow, that's an awful. <laughs> that's not expressive. But while at first glance Hodor has a similar situation, it's very important to keep in mind that aphasia does not affect intelligence, and descriptions of Hodor point to a broader intellectual disability. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, 
Question number five, the world of the TV show and film Westworld is known for the use of androids who act as staff as a, at an amusement park and are considered to be indistinguishable from humans. What mathematician and computer scientist developed a test to tell human from computer? I have a guess. I, okay, because I have no idea. I think it's Turing. I think it was the Turing Ooh, test. That's good. Okay, is it Turing test? Let's see. Yes, Alan Turing. Uh, as if cracking the Nazi code during World War II wasn't enough, Turing helped develop theoretical artificial intelligence and computer science and later researched how stripes and spot patterns appear in nature. Damn, that guy had a lot of time on his hands. Okay, question number six. The Pixar film feature five emotions as characters. Name them. So, so you've got Yeah, the joy. movie was Inside Out. Yes. Okay. You got uh, joy. Joy. You got sadness. Sad. Yep, you anger. Anger. Uh, je- jealousy? Yeah, yeah, jealousy or envy. Yeah, and then, well, as we all know from The Good Place, the only two emotions human needs are sadness and confusion. But um, <laughs> That's true. Um, yeah, we got, okay, joy, anger, sadness. There's one jealousy. more. Okay, yeah. so joy is yellow. Mm-hmm. Sadness is blue. Anger yes. is red. Jealousy yes. is green. What's the last character? Why can't I think of the last character? I didn't see the movie, but I saw plenty of internet things about it. What are some other emotions? <laughs> Anger, sadness, jealousy, hunger. Is it hunger? Mm. <laughs> Irritation. No, that's anger. Oh, uh, engineer Josh that? with the with the save fear, oh. fear. Of course. Okay, wait. Let me just make sure. Uh, yes, joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. Oh, disgust. Disgust. Yeah. Whoops. Uh, Inside Out consulted psychologist uh, Dacher Keltner and Paul Ekman for the science behind the movie. Work by Ekman has shown that the general consensus among scientists agree with those five, but one could also add surprise and maybe contempt. <laughs> that rules. Those okay. are two of my overriding emotions. <laughs> surprise and contempt. Yeah. You're always like, oh, and then you're like, ugh. <laughs> I hate it. <laughs> All right. Question number seven. This is probably another one for Josh. Tetradox. Okay tetrodotoxin, a neurotoxin that prevents action potentials by blocking sodium channels, stops you from controlling your muscles and causes you to stop breathing. It is a common toxin in media, such as one of the more sobering episodes of The Simpsons in which Homer faces his mortality. What animal is a well-known source of tetrodotoxin? I have a guess. I mean, I was going to, I guess jellyfish. Uh, Oh, that's that's fun. I was going to say like poison tree frog. Oh, that makes way more sense. I'm going to go with your answer, Poison Tree Fox. Okay. And Engineer Josh is writing down quickly. Okay. Oh, no, we're both wrong. Are Fug- we? Okay. Fugu fish. Oh, pufferfish. Yeah, it's pufferfish or fugu in sushi restaurants. Also found in other poisonous fish, tetrodotoxin is a powerful neurotoxin that was also shown in media as a way to mimic death for a short time. This may come from an idea that near-lethal doses are allegedly used in Haitian voodoo zombie preparations, though researchers have disputed that zombie powder is the result of other toxins, along with the power of suggestion. If you want to hear more about toxins, check out episode 150. It's delightful. It is delightful. Um, Oh, that's good. 
there's there's literally nothing in my body that wants me to try some some you know puffer fish absolutely not i mean as someone who is i would say the more uh the overly cautious and fearful uh member of uh misinformation the girl who hates caves mountains space the ocean (laughs) and anything that isn't just like walking around on the ground um yeah i'm not eating food that could potentially kill me uh no no thanks who knew i was the more adventurous of the duo uh but also no i don't want to eat i don't want to eat something that could kill me that doesn't that doesn't seem this i don't know if chocolate cake one day was like it will kill you sorry no more chocolate cake for lt it'll kill me Mm, see i'm i'm looking forward to death by chocolate (laughs) hey that wasn't even my i didn't even do that on purpose look at me all right question number eight easy one the movie lucy is one of several movies that aims to suggest that what would happen if we were able to use 100 percent of our brain what is the most commonly claimed amount that we use that's 10 percent. okay i've heard yeah i've heard 10 percent. you gave me the look like you well, you were like ah, the simple question <laughs> Sorry, oh, I, I built it up and then I, I pa- made you panic. <laughs> I think it's 10%. Okay, it is 10%. The myth may have come from the late 19th, early 20th century psychologist William James, who proposed we were not meeting our fullest potential. This may also be due to our limited understanding of what all the parts of the brain did. Sad to say for all those practicing their telekinesis, we are pretty much using all of our brain all of the time. <laughs> the movie Lucy came out in 2014 around the time of the World Cup. During during his department World Cup watch parties, commercials for Lucy were more groan-inducing than the soccer matches, he says. <laughs> yeah, a bunch of neuroscientists who are like, this brain shit. Okay, this is for you, Julia. Question number nine. What board game for your whole brain was released in 1998 and had mini games involving trivia, drawing, word puzzles, and charades, among others? That's cranium. Uh, oh, wait, I'm on the wrong page. Yes, cranium. Um, you could probably mouth the words along with me, but created by Richard Tate and Wit Alexander to make a game where everyone can win at something. They designed it for 20-something yuppies and were sold in Starbucks, their investor. It was later sold in Barnes & Noble or Schmarns & Bobel and later acquired by Hasbro. Yeah, so it came with like a little container, like putty, like Play-Doh type stuff. Mm-hmm. And damn, if you didn't get... If that didn't dry out <laughs> oh, <laughs> after immediately, like, you immediately. Know, after playing with it like twice. But that was it the was only downside super- to Cranium, I think. Oh, Cranium was super fun. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed playing it. It was definitely like a party game for a yeah. while. All right. In question number 10, this one's for Lauren. What American artist famous for painting large photorealistic portraits is unable to recognize faces, a condition known as prosopagnosia? Um, that, that person is Chuck Close. And I hope I'm right. Yes, it is Chuck Close. What's um, he only re- uh, he he makes uh, really big, like they're very large scale. Um, they look like you know those collage pictures that when you stand hmm. far away, mm-hmm. it looks like. But instead of it being like pictures of smaller things, they're usually like um, circles of color or like swirling color or something like that. And so it looks like from a distance a portrait and they're really highly detailed portraits but up close they look very like blurry it's kind of like um pixels you can almost describe them as pixels um so he only we actually have a close in our 
um, collection. It's not the large scale ones. It's one of his smaller pieces. But apparently he only realized it years later, he stated that his impetus for constantly painting faces has been a drive to remember and recognize faces. Uh, face recognition seems to be located in a very specific part of the temporal lobe known as the fusiform face area and seems to be larger in the right hemisphere. So that is our basic intro to neuroscience from Adam. Adam, thank you. So terrific. I feel like so I'm qualified much. to do surgery. Yeah. I mean, I'm just kidding. Man, I promise I won't. No, <laughs> no, we definitely will not do that. Um, but a uh, couple of plugs for Adam. Uh, he has a website for his uh, for his papers or what he calls his weird side projects. It's called alarge.net, A-L-A-R-G-E.net. Um, or he also has uh, a board game theme search. He can Ooh. You can check out ludothemes.herokuapp.com, L-U-D-O themes.hero, H-E-R-O-K-U-A-P-P.com. That's also linked in his website. Um, also, he suggests donating to a neuroscience research charity. Um, and a safe choice, he recommended, is the Society for Neuroscience at sfn.org forward slash support, uh, which supports professional development for trainees and public outreach programs. Oh, so we will be including all of those links um, on our socials if you want to take a look. And definitely like check out um, the book. He also provided a bit.ly for us. It's bit.ly forward slash misinfo neuro uh <laughs> that's m-i-s-s-i-n-f-o-n-e-u-r-o definitely check out the book it's fantastic and i actually had to edit just a few things out so there's more information there um if you want to learn more about um, neuroscience but thank you adam oh my gosh adam that was amazing. amazing i feel smarter my brain is is engorged with knowledge um <laughs> It's Sorry. just oxygen. It's, it's just it's just my oxygen. Um, also, I just wanted to give another plug. Salty um, if, banana. Salty banana. That's the name of my boat. <laughs> That's a banana. great name for a boat. Isn't it a good name for a boat? You know, I did say to Steve the other day, um, you know how people are like, oh, yeah, that was my nickname in college. Or like, yeah, that's my that's a good name. for That was my band in college or whatever. My new thing is, oh, yeah, that's the name of my boat. That's great. Yeah, thanks. Um, I wanted to provide another plug. If you enjoyed our episode um, with our good friend Samuel Gagnon Pike, um, who talked about um, fermentation, uh, fermentation, he now has a fermentation podcast <laughs> where you can learn all about fermentation and beer brewing and all those delicious bacterias. He, uh, it's called Merry Miso Foods. Um, or Mary Miso podcast. Uh, they are Mary Miso Foods on Instagram, where he posts a lot of oh disgusting pictures of <laughs> of vinegar mothers and what a and lovely plug bubbling. <laughs> oh no, he would he would be thrilled. Yes. Um. So yeah, check out Mary Miso podcast on Spotify. Um, if you want to learn more about fer- fermentation and maybe do some experimenting with fermentation on your own. So. Uh, yeah. And, uh, thanks everybody. And thanks to everyone who joined us at our, uh, strong trivia, um, trivia for video yes. gamers and yes. also non-video gamers. Exactly. And, um, be sure to check out on, uh, May 6th through the museum's, um, social media channels, the induction ceremony for the 2021 World Video Game Hall of Fame class. 
Yeah, it's exciting. A lot of, yeah, a lot of video gamers on Twitter are waiting with bated breath. They get so like every oh, time. Oh, they get all head up. <laughs> I'll say it now because I couldn't say it at the event. So like every time the museum is like, what do you think should be inducted this year? And then there's always like a picture of like the you know possible finalists for this sure. year or something. And people are always like, I can't believe Super Mario Brothers isn't there. What do you mean <laughs> Tetris isn't there? And it's like, <sighs> guys, those guys, those are already in the Hall of Fame. They're already like, in. You can't vote for them because they're already they're already there. <laughs> like, I can't believe they would try to do this without Tetris. And it's like, <sighs> everybody, do your Calm research. Down. Google look, is free. Look at something before yeah. you comment. I don't know. Anyway, I know. Anyway, I'll, people were very head up for the very little that I saw. People were very head up about Candy Crush. Oh, Ugh. oh, they were oh, mad you know about what, Candy Crush. I'm talking. They were yeah. talking. Hey, you know what? All publicity is good publicity as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> anyway, thank you, everybody, for sticking with us. Thank you for listening. And uh, we will catch you next time. Adios. Bye.